Hello, and welcome to The Scott Mize Show, a podcast focused on health, diet, bodybuilding, and philosophy. I interview experts, doctors, coaches, and N equals one case studies to answer your questions about improving health, achieving your best physique, and making sustainable progress. We'll cover topics from carnivore and ketogenic diets, to bodybuilding, to life philosophy, and everything in between. Enjoy the show. This episode is brought to you by Optimal Carnivore. Do you struggle to eat organ meat? Optimal Carnivore was created by carnivores for carnivores. Long-term listeners of the show will know I'm a huge fan of supplementing a carnivore or ketogenic diet with organs. Organs have bioavailable nutrients that you can't find anywhere else. Um, Not everyone finds they have to eat organs on a carnivore or ketogenic diet, but many have found benefits, including myself. And Optimal Carnivore is a great uh, supplement if you are not willing or able to cook organs, you can't stomach them, or if you're traveling um, and it's just something that you can easily take and it's very high quality. Uh, Their organ complex is from grass-fed animals in New Zealand. It includes nine different organs. They also have a beef liver product, a brain nourish product, all of which I've tried and used regularly. Um, Taking six capsules is the same as eating an ounce of raw organ meat from the butcher. So super easy. And you can get 10% off your order and other special deals by going to optimalcarnivore.com slash Scott. That's optimalcarnivore.com slash Scott. And go there to help support the show and get your organ supplements. Dr. Georgia Ede needs no introduction, but I'll give her one anyway. (laughs) She's a Harvard-trained, board-certified psychiatrist specializing in nutrition-focused counseling. She's a regular writer for Psychology Today, DietDoctor.com, as well as her incredibly helpful blog, Diagnosis Diet. Georgia is well-known in the carnivore community for her excellent work, articles, and lectures on plant toxins and implications for mental health, as well as other topics. Welcome to the show, Georgia. Thank you very much for having me, Scott. It's great to be on. Yeah, pleasure is all mine. So Georgia, I'd love to just start with a little bit about you. And for folks who don't know, what kind of first interested you in nutrition? Well, it was, I think, like so many other doctors and other folks who come to this sort of alternative way of looking at food, it was through my own health issues. And, you know, things that that occurred for me in my early 40s that symptoms, mystery syndromes that none of my very smart, very caring Harvard doctors could help me with at the time I was working at Harvard. And, you know, things like IBS and chronic fatigue and fibromyalgia. And I just felt like I was falling apart in my early 40s. And all I had lots of expensive, sophisticated tests and everything was normal. So because one of the things I was struggling with was IBS, you know, sort of stomach pain, I decided to try to at least address that by changing my diet to see if that might make a difference. And so I did this series of trial and error experiments over the course of about six months, and I kept a food and symptom journal to try to see if I could at least take care of the stomach pain or or make that less. So not only did the stomach pain go away, but everything that I was struggling with completely resolved within about six months. And, And as I think people know where I'm heading with the story, is that my diet ended up after about six months flipping itself upside down from very high plant, high fiber, low meat, low fat, low cholesterol diet to a very low plant, low fiber, high cholesterol, high animal food diet. 
And really what I had discovered was I had a lot of food sensitivities or had developed them anyway, because I was no longer able to tolerate so many foods that I had seemingly not had any difficulty with before. So the new diet that I was on was mostly meat at that time. And that was mm, 2000. Oh, I don't know. I'm losing track of time because I've been on this diet for so long. I've been on a low plant, a ketogenic diet for many years. And so what I came to understand was that, you know, this diet was very healing for me, that eating mostly meat and very few plants seemed to reverse all of the symptoms that I was struggling with, but also a lot of things that I had never really realized were problems before, including some degree of difficulty with concentration and some mood symptoms, anxiety, depression, never anything major, energy levels. I mean, things that I think a lot of us take for granted are supposed to decline as we get older. And so I felt much better on this diet. And I thought, well, that's really interesting. I mean, first of all, I thought the diet was going to kill me because it was so high in animal foods. And I just had traditional education around that. So I was really worried. I was seriously worried about the long-term health effects of the diet. But also, I was wondering why, as a psychiatrist, why the diet was improving my mental health, because that was something I hadn't even been trying to do. And I became so curious about that as a psychiatrist. There are so many patients I was working with, middle-aged patients, many of them, who were struggling with a lot of the same symptoms that I had been, and I hadn't been able to help them with medication, and I hadn't understood what was going on for them. So I thought, I wonder if this is a diet that could be helpful, not just for physical health, but also for mental health. And why would that be? I mean, I really knew nothing at that point, absolutely nothing about how food affected the brain. Up until then, I only thought about food as a way to control my weight, period. And I think a lot of women think like that. And suddenly my mind just opened up to all of these questions and I dove into the science. I'd never looked before at nutrition science. And as I think many of your listeners will understand, you scratch the surface of any of these nutrition guidelines, so-called science behind the nutrition guidelines, and there's nothing there. And there's so much fascinating information for how food works in the body and what's actually inside food and what we actually need. There's so much fantastic information. It's completely ignored by conventional nutrition researchers, I just became obsessed. (laughs) So I guess (laughs) that's what happened to me. And that was, I don't know, maybe almost 10 years ago now. Wow. Yeah, that's super interesting and great to hear how you started believing food could affect how we think and feel for the first time through your own experience. Why is that so controversial? Folks not believing that food can affect how, I guess how we feel is one thing. More people would probably agree with that, but how we think. Yeah, I mean, I think people don't make the connection. I think often we feel like the brain is not part of the body. And even people who understand that the brain is, of course, part of the body, we think of food as something that affects our heart and our weight and our cholesterol levels. I mean, there's been so much focus over the past 50 years or so on those isolated parts of our health. And we rarely think about how food affects other aspects of our health. And of course, I've come to understand that you don't need a different diet for each part of the body. Of course, that wouldn't make any sense. All the cells need the same basic nutritional care. 
And all of the chemistry of the cells, uh, the components of cells come from the food we eat. Where else could they come from? And so I think what's controversial about it, I mean, it, it, it's changing. You know, people are starting to, there's a slow, gradual interest growing in the connection between food and the brain. But I think the controversy is a lot of people think that so much of mental health has to do with our upbringing, our experiences, our mindset, uh, you know, that, that we have a lot of control over it. I think people believe we have much more control over it through psychotherapy, for example, or through changing our environment, our relationships. And those things are very, very important. Don't get me wrong. But I think people think that that's most of it. I don't think most people realize that if you have a mental illness, it doesn't necessarily mean that you need medication. What if it's simply that you haven't been feeding your brain properly and that the chemical imbalance that you've been told you have is like so many other chronic illnesses, simply a result of eating the wrong way? And I know that sounds radical and maybe even crazy to some people, but why should the brain be any different? We now understand that so many other health problems are directly related to how we eat. Why should mental illness be any different? Yeah, makes a lot of sense. And I think it's really important, some of the research and writing you're doing, particularly in psychology today, to help elucidate some of those effects. And I definitely want to get back to that and get into some of the specific pathways. But in general, I've always admired how you spend a lot of time fighting some of these nutrition myths in general, <laughs> whether it's tearing down the latest Lancet study or other random epidemiological research. I guess, what are some of the main problems with epidemiological research and kind of what pushback have you experienced amongst colleagues in your industry, other psychiatrists, et cetera? Well, it's interesting. I think, first of all, I have a lot of exposure more than most people do in my field to the psychiatrists who are interested in nutrition. So there aren't that many of us who think along the same lines, but it's slowly growing. And of course, I know those people and interact with them, and that's wonderful. There's a handful of us out there. But I also have, of course, many people in my life who are psychiatrists that I've known for many years or that I come to you know, meet at conferences who are not necessarily interested in nutrition or think that the ideas that I write about are are strange or unfounded, or even in some cases, people think they're radical or dangerous. It's fascinating to me, but a lot of the pushback comes from there not being randomized controlled trials of nutrition and mental health with very, very few exceptions. And there are some people when a field is new, they're sort of the early adopters and the late adopters. <laughs> and so the early adopters are really excited to say, well, oh, this is really exciting. What's the harm in trying a change in diet? Think about all the possibilities. And yes, let, let's learn more and let's try it. Why not? And then there are the late adopters who are very skeptical and very conservative in their thinking. And they need to see a very high level of evidence before they're willing to make a change or even consider making a change in, in their practice. And those people want to see evidence with a capital E, randomized controlled clinical trials of dietary interventions for mental health disorders. We only have two of those so far. <laughs> so if you're going to wait for the studies that you need to see or that you think you need to see, you'd be waiting an awfully long time. Yeah. They're coming, and the study that you hope to see may not materialize for a long time, if ever. And these changes, these dietary changes are so safe and so healthy 
it doesn't make sense to me to wait. I think the risk is extremely low and the potential benefits are just huge. Yeah, that's a great point. I've always thought that waiting for the perfect randomized control trial to come out is just a futile exercise. And on the other side of the coin, have others within the psychiatric field implemented any of your protocols or guidelines or had patients with improvements similar to yours? Yeah. So, you know, I recently, at the beginning of this year, late January, I started an online consult service where I'm not just, you know, working with individuals who are trying to make dietary changes or have questions about how dietary changes may affect their medication, for example. But I'm also um, having uh, consultation sessions with other clinicians around the world who are interested in learning about how to implement nutrition strategies in their clinical practice. And so that's been a lot of fun and really interesting to meeting all kinds of interesting people, uh, forward thinking general practitioners and psychiatrists and nurse practitioners. And they tell me the same thing that so many of their patients, if the patient is willing, if they're working with people who are willing to change their diet, that they see improvements and sometimes really dramatic improvements. So we know that this works in the real world for many people who are willing to try it. But for so many people, that's not good enough to hear that. They really want to see some, you know, uh, and I understand. And I think it's important to do the clinical trials. But, you know, I think it's going to be a long time before we have all of the clinical trials that we need. Yeah, that's absolutely great to hear that you're kind of enabling other psychiatrists and practitioners as well as implementing this in your own own practice. And Georgia, you talk about kind of two sides of a coin, both certain negatives of plants with toxins and also problems with undereating animal foods and lacking certain nutrients. Can you just take a little bit of time to introduce those two concepts for folks who are less familiar? You know, why do plants have toxins? What are some of the most dangerous ones? I think we can start there. Sure. I fell in love with this topic when I started thinking about the world of dividing food into plants and animals because that everything we eat is either a plant or an animal or originally was. <laughs> and so animals defend themselves with claws and fangs and growling and chasing. They don't need to have any other mode of protecting themselves. And so if you're going to eat an animal for lunch, you have to deal with all of those defense mechanisms and there's some risk involved. But if you're approaching a plant, it looks so innocent sitting there in a field. It looks defenseless. It looks vulnerable. It looks innocent, <laughs> but it's defending itself just as powerfully as any animal is. It's just doing it silently with invisible chemical weapons. And these have evolved over hundreds of millions of years because, you know, plants can't move. They would never have made it this far in evolution if they didn't protect themselves. So. All creatures defend themselves. All creatures want to, you know, take over the world. <laughs> and so, and they especially want to protect their offspring. So plants have chemical weapons, many, many sophisticated ones. And some of the most powerful ones are found in the seeds of plants because seeds all contain embryos, grains, beans, nuts, and seeds are all seeds. And the seeds of plants are the most heavily defended because that's the future generation of the plant. So it makes sense that things, you know, the sort of a paleo style diet, if you will, that removes grains and legumes 
may be a safer diet for human beings because there's so the lectins and phytic acid, lectins, which are lectins are um, they poke holes in animal cells and they provoke, they aggravate the immune system. And uh, seeds, all the seed foods are loaded with lectins. And seeds are also very high in phytic acid, which is a mineral magnet that interferes with our ability to absorb minerals from foods, things like zinc and iron and calcium and magnesium, which are crucial for brain function. Very hard for us to absorb minerals from these foods. And so there are lots of other examples. There are toxins in the cruciferous vegetables that can cause damage to cells. There are toxins. There are things called goitrogens in many types of foods, which interfere with iodine processing and thyroid hormone function. There are neurotoxins, toxins within nightshades. Nightshades are the tomatoes, eggplant family, any food that has a little elfish green hat. (laughs) Plants, for example, have that little green hat on top. So those foods, all the nightshades contain neurotoxins that some people are quite sensitive to. And you know, the, the list just goes on and on. There are so many, there isn't a plant in the world that doesn't defend itself with a chemical weapon. And these chemical weapons are really interesting. And of course, they're primarily designed to protect themselves from small creatures, you know, like worms and insects and bacteria and fungi. But our cells are made of the same stuff. <laughs> All animal cells are basically the same construction. And so right. if you eat enough of these foods, Or if you are vulnerable because you have gut damage or immune system damage, then those natural toxins, many of which we've, you know, we've evolved alongside these plants for a long period of time. The plant foods that we've been eating for a long period of time, we have evolved defense mechanisms to deal with. We either don't absorb these toxins or we rapidly detoxify and eliminate them from the body. We kick them out, basically. But if you have gut system or immune system damage, you may not do that as well as you should. And I think that helps to explain why people may tolerate plant foods for a long period of time. And then at some point in their life, they develop sensitivities and they no longer can handle a lot of plant foods. Yeah. So everybody's different. I don't want to say that everyone should stop eating all plant foods. Most people do fine with plant foods or at least certain plant foods. But if you have a health problem, it makes sense to me to suspect plants rather than give them the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. And I was going to ask, how can someone know if they're kind of being impacted by plant toxins? But it kind of sounds like unless you have an acute, very averse reaction to eating something and you can kind of trace that over time, some of these chronic conditions, you just have to kind of guess and figure things out. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, unfortunately, there's, you know, there are no good tests that I'm aware of for plant food sensitivities, and there's no substitute for trial and error. It's frustrating, but it's also tremendously empowering and interesting. I mean, what you can discover about how you respond to foods, uh, you can do that all by yourself. You don't need any professional help to do that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty great. I definitely encourage people to experiment. And Similarly, what are some of the problems with under-eating animal foods? I think most listeners will be a lot more familiar with this or both. And kind of after that, it would be great to hear you tie it into how both the existence of plants and the lack or limit of animal foods, sort of what pathways it can affect emotionally and mentally. Sure. Big questions. And so 
very objectively, if you very dispassionately and rationally look at the science, it's really obvious that animal foods are are very healthy for us. And when I say animal foods, I, I should clarify that I mean meat, seafood, and poultry. I think some people are sensitive to eggs, dairy, and so, I mean, eggs are can be quite healthy, but not if you're sensitive to them. So I'm just going to think, you know, limit my discussion to, to, you know, meat, seafood, poultry. But there's, it's quite obvious, unless you're looking at the epidemiology, which is just a strange kettle of fish, all the other fields of science line up beautifully to support our, the necessity of animal foods in the human diet, because only animal foods contain every nutrient we need in its proper form without any anti-nutrients. And you can't say that about any plant food. <laughs> all plant foods are lacking certain essential nutrients. All plant foods contain natural toxins and anti-nutrients. And there isn't anything you, you, that exists in a plant food that you can't get from an animal food. As far as I can tell, there's no necessity for plant foods if you're eating enough animal protein and fat. So the more plant foods you eat, the harder it would seem to be able to nourish yourself because there are so many things working against us in plants, these anti-nutrients and natural toxins. The more plants you eat, the harder it is for you to get nutrients, not just out of the plant foods they're eating, but out of the animal foods they're eating as well. So it's just a harder road to walk. If you want to be efficient about your nutrition and get everything you need without anything you don't need, if you follow the science to its logical conclusion, then animal foods are all you need. And they are also the safest source of these nutrients, the, the highest, most bioavailable. We absorb and utilize the nutrients in animal foods so much better in most cases than we do from plant foods. It's not that plants don't have nutrients. They do. It's just that many of them are on the wrong form and many of them are harder for us to use because there are anti-nutrients that interfere. So like are people eating a mixed diet with some animal foods and some plant foods? You know, most people will do okay with that. But as far as I can tell, the fewer plant foods you eat, the more nourished you will be. And if you don't eat enough animal foods, if you're eating a low animal food diet, particularly if you're eating a vegan diet, which contains no animal foods whatsoever, you will be lacking really important essential nutrients if you don't supplement very, very carefully. Unsupplemented vegan diet is dangerous. It's, it's an unsupplemented vegan diet is, is lethal. It's fatal. You can't survive on a, an unsupplemented all plant diet. Yeah. And I think a lot of people, even today, <laughs> don't understand that. I work with people all the time in my consult service regularly. Parents, you know, worried about their children who have decided to change to a vegan diet and they're not supplementing at all, at all. They don't have the information because a lot of people who promote plant-based diets, they downplay, they minimize the risks rather than being transparent about them. And I think that's really dangerous. Yeah, it's especially scary when people are forcing it on their children. That's really tough and very tough to watch and grapple with ethically. And thinking about, you gave a great presentation at the Boulder Carnivore Conference. I'm going to butcher this, but I believe it was something regarding, it was some form of essential fatty acids and how the pathway to convert from plant foods 
without the existence of the essential fatty acids from animal foods actually doesn't exist in the human brain. Can you talk a little bit about that? And correct me if I'm getting that totally wrong. No, no, of course. And I think you're talking about arachidonic acid. But so I talked about a couple of different essential fatty acids in that talk. And oh, the Boulder Carnivore Conference, by the way, wasn't it amazing? <laughs> so fun. It was just a great conference. Very well put together by Amber O'Hearn. Thank you, Amber. So I talked about DHA and arachidonic acid. So DHA is an essential, DHA is an omega-3 fatty acid. And arachidonic acid is an omega-6 fatty acid. And these are key fatty acids in the brain. So the fat of the brain is very high in both of these fatty acids. So we need both of them. But uh, they are, on paper, you can make these. DHA and arachidonic acid, in some circles, is not they're not considered essential because there are pathways that exist in the body to make them out of other things. So, for example, we can make DHA from ALA. And ALA, alpha-linoleic acid, is something you can find in plant and animal foods. So whether you eat plants or animals, you can get this ALA, like it's in flax seeds, for example, but it's also in animal foods. And there is a pathway where you can turn ALA, theoretically anyway, into EPA and DHA, which are omega-3 fatty acids that the body actually uses. We don't really use ALA. So ALA is the like the parent fatty acid, the parent omega-3. It can create EPA and DHA, theoretically anyway. But in many people, this pathway is unreliable. And, and you know, the studies vary. In some cases, 0% of the ALA gets turned into EPA and DHA. And in some cases, it's maybe 9% or more. It's on average less than 10%, and in some cases, 0%. So if you want DHA in your brain, you're taking your chances. If you're not eating DHA, which you can only find in animal foods, plant foods contain absolutely no DHA. So if you're fond of, you know, games of chance, you can say, okay, maybe I'll, maybe I'll get enough DHA from these plant foods. Maybe I won't. So I recommend that people who eat a vegan diet, and there are many reasons to consider a vegan diet. And, and but nutritionally, I think there's no good argument for a vegan diet. So people eating a vegan diet must, and this is my professional recommendation, take a DHA supplement from algae because algae is neither a plant nor an animal. <laughs> <laughs> I want to say discuss. Algae is neither a plant nor an animal. Discuss. <laughs> so it's vegan friendly, right? And so it's, it's not actually an animal. So it's vegan friendly. They do create DHA and EPA, these omega-3 fatty acids we need. So, but you cannot get DHA from a flaxseed supplement or a chia supplement. That's the wrong kind of omega-3. That's ALA. And we don't convert enough ALA, according to most experts, to meet our needs. So that's DHA, omega-3. The other parent fatty acid is omega-6. Uh, there's a parent omega-6 fatty acid called linoleic acid, abbreviated LA. LA, again, this in plants and animals. And there is this pathway that exists in cells where you can turn LA into arachidonic acid. And we need arachidonic acid for lots and lots of things, including brain function. So, but arachidonic acid itself, just like DHA, only exists in animal foods. You will not find arachidonic acid in plant foods, just like you will not find DHA in plant foods. So arachidonic acid is what we use. We use linoleic acid for just one small 
purpose. But th- this pathway that theoretically exists, when you look at the actual clinical trials where they where they give people linoleic acid and they see how much arachidonic acid comes out the other side, it's virtually none. Like you can pour linoleic acid into somebody and the arachidonic acid levels in their blood will not budge. Just doesn't make any difference at all. Now, the asterisk after that, which I didn't have time to explain fully in the presentation, but I explained fully in a Psychology Today article. There's a Psychology Today article I wrote shortly after the conference to flesh this out a little bit more called, Do You Have Arachophobia? That's all about arachidonic acid. And there's this question of, well, why doesn't this pathway seem to work? And if so, are people who eat a vegan diet walking around with no arachidonic acid in their blood? Well, they actually do have arachidonic acid in their blood. So somehow, it, some of it must be getting transformed, but we don't understand why we can't see this in the clinical studies. So again, you're taking your chances if you rely on plant foods to give you enough arachidonic acid. Maybe you'll have enough, maybe you won't. Some of the studies show that vegans have enough arachidonic acid. Some of them say that you don't. So why not play it safe? And I think that these two fatty acids give us a very strong argument for the brain needing animal fat. And that's the other article I wrote shortly after, the same week, I think, about DHA. Until the availability of algae supplements, which was is a very recent development, you know, it would have been very hard for most people to obtain DHA from a, a plant-based diet. Enough DHA anyway. And DHA is critical for brain formation development of the human cortex during infancy. So I think it really makes a very strong case that human beings evolved to require animal fat in their diets. Yeah, absolutely. And Georgia, what are some of the ways that vegan diet or diet low in animal foods, high in plant foods could manifest itself in some of these kind of disorders or symptoms such as depression, anxiety, increased violence, just paranoia, schizophrenia, things like that? Yeah, you know, uh, we don't have any clinical trials to answer this question, but I can tell you what we do know, which is that people who eat plant-based diet are more likely to have B12 deficiency, their iron stores may be lower, and they're more likely to have omega-3 deficits, DHA and EPA, DHA in particular, which is very rich in the brain. They're more likely to have lower DHA levels, and they're more likely to have lower zinc levels. So when you look at these brain-healthy nutrients, these, these nutrients that the brain requires in order to function properly, You'll see that if you eat a plant-based, and by plant-based, I mean vegan diet, the vegetarian diet is a little bit better because it includes some animal foods like eggs and dairy. But if you eat a vegan diet, you're more likely to be deficient in some of these key brain nutrients. And we know that those deficiencies can lead to serious brain health problems. So B12 deficiency is extremely dangerous for the brain, and iron deficiency is as well. Omega-3 deficiencies as well, particularly during the most critical years of brain development, which are from the third trimester of pregnancy to age two. So let's say, for example, that you're not getting enough of those nutrients when your brain is developing. There may be, we don't have clinical trials that uh, it wouldn't be ethical to do this clinical trial, 
we don't know what some of the potentially irreversible damage uh, may be done uh, if you don't get enough of the nutrients when the brain is developing during that critical window of time. So again, that's a game of chance that you're playing because we really don't know. We don't know whether people who eat a vegan diet are at higher risk for mental health problems. We know that people who have these specific deficiencies are, but the interesting thing about the way we eat these days is that these deficiencies are not just found in people who eat a vegan diet. These deficiencies are very common. The ones that I listed are more common in people who eat a vegan diet, but people who eat a standard diet that includes animal foods, many of them are also deficient in iron. Like iron deficiency is very common. 10 to 20% of, of women in reproductive years are deficient in iron and iron is really important for the brain. So we have a lot of deficiencies in why. Even if you eat animal foods, why do you have deficiencies? Well, because I think this is, again, my hypothesis. We're eating too many foods that interfere with our ability to obtain, extract, utilize the nutrients in our food. Because if you're eating a lot of grains and a lot of beans, for example, which we're told should be the staple foods in our diet, you're eating a diet that's making it hard for you to get the minerals out of the foods you're eating. And if you're not eating enough animal foods, you're not getting enough B12. Or if you have gut damage or if you're taking a medication, if you're taking, um, there are certain acid blockers that people take for ulcers and gastritis and reflux disease, which make it difficult to process B12 and absorb it into the bloodstream. So many things we do in our modern life are interfering with our ability to get the nutrients that our brain needs. So these deficiencies are not just in vegans. Let me put it this way. It's not enough to make sure you're eating the right foods. It's also really important to make sure you're not eating too many of the wrong foods. Yeah. Because both of those things matter. Yeah, that's really interesting. So it sounds like it's mostly around nutrient deficiencies and whether that's you're not eating a food or there's another food you're eating that's inhibiting your absorption of a given nutrient in a food. Right. And I, you know, there may be many other reasons you know, how the brain may be affected by diet. But I think the one that's easiest to make a case for where there's plenty of solid science is nutrient deficiencies. Because if your brain isn't made of the right things, it will not work properly. Right. And so if someone were to ask, you know, what are the foods most likely to trigger depression or anxiety or, you know, thinking about serotonin, what are kind of dietary precursors as it relates to you know, anxiety and depression, would you kind of first anim recommend animal-based nutrient-dense diet and then say, look at the plant toxins and you have to kind of evaluate them and systematically remove them? Or how would you kind of go about that? Yeah, I mean, I think there's three pieces, right? So there's taking a look at the, the most common culprits in the plant food world, the foods that, in my opinion, based on the science that I've read over the years, that no human being should eat, which are the, the grains and the legumes. <laughs> so they're just not human food. They're not designed, we have not evolved to be able to handle those foods. And there's many reasons I could explain why that's. But in any case, making sure that you're minimizing or eliminating those is really a good idea. There's including some animal foods in your diet so that you'll get all the nutrients that you need and the right proteins, the right amino acids, the right mix of amino acids so that you can make the neurotransmitters that your brain needs. So you can make serotonin and dopamine. These come from 
amino acids that come from proteins. So, you know, you need to make sure you're getting enough protein. And yes, you can get protein. Sometimes there are some barriers in the way and the, it can be challenging to get the right mix of amino acids from plant foods. And most plant foods don't contain all of the essential amino acids we need. So you have to kind of plan your diet very carefully. There are a few exceptions, like soy, for example, is a complete uh, protein. But uh, so there's that. And then the other piece of the puzzle is to avoid, like the plague, the refined carbohydrates and seed oils. So it's not just about getting the right mix, making sure that you're eating animal foods and being careful with certain plant foods. It's also about avoiding the modern processed foods that are so high in refined carbohydrates and seed oils like the so-called vegetable oils, you know, things like soybean oil. The refined carbohydrates and the seed oils promote inflammation, oxidation, insulin resistance, and hormonal imbalances. And these are can be very powerfully destabilizing. I call them mood destabilizers of the brain. And so these foods are, you know, they've now permeated every corner of the world. Everybody's eating these foods now. And they're, th- these two ingredients are in pretty much every processed food in the grocery store. So we now understand that inflammation and oxidation are powerful drivers of most mental health problems, just as they are for, for most chronic physical health problems. So it's not just about getting the mix of animal and plant foods right. It's also about avoiding the junk. Yeah, absolutely. And flipping that a little bit, Georgia, what are some of the least harmful plant foods in the diet? Would it be kind of fruits or how do you think about that? Oh, that's such a good question. Yeah. So when, you know, I think about a plant and how it's defending itself, I mean, the plant obviously doesn't want you to digest its seeds. It may want you to carry it, to, to, to sort of deposit its seeds elsewhere, so to speak. It may want you to be a vehicle for its seeds, but it certainly doesn't want you to digest them. That goes against its purpose. So there are some plants that use fruits to attract the right kind of predator to then transport its seeds to sprout somewhere, germinate somewhere else. Some fruits are toxic and poisonous, but the fruits that we're familiar with that we eat are generally quite low in toxins. They're not free of toxins, but they're they're designed not to kill us so that we will live another day to continue to help the plant in its mission. So the fruits tend to be the least toxic parts of plants and seeds tend to be the most toxic and the rest of the plants kind of everything in between. So really the plant doesn't want you to eat its body. It doesn't want you to eat its seeds. It wants you perhaps, if you're the right animal, to eat its fruit. Yeah. That's really interesting. And I guess where would coffee fall on that spectrum? Because (laughs) some would say coffee is a legume. Some would say it's really high in phytic acid. Some would say it's a fruit. Curious, how do you think about that and the toxins in coffee? Oh, I know it's sad, isn't it, to think about this. So coffee's made from seeds, the seeds of a coffee fruit, but it's the seeds themselves that are used. Coffee beans are not beans. They're not legumes. They're seeds. I used to call them legumes because they're called beans, and I've, I've been thankfully corrected about that. So I've got it into my head now. Coffee, beans, are seeds. So these are seeds, and so they have all the same risk that any other seed has. But, you know, I, <laughs> as I like to say to people, choose your battles. So there are worse vices you could have than coffee. I don't drink coffee. I'm unfortunately quite sensitive to it, so I rarely drink it. And when I do, I pay a price for that. But, you know, when it comes to vices, Probably depends on the person, but I'm sure in most cases that it's safer to have a cup of coffee in the morning than it is to eat sugar all day long. 
So you want to choose your battles. You could also talk about alcohol and whether that's safe or not. And again, that's another advice and choose your battles. So I think for people to understand how it affects them. So coffee has very specific effects on the brain in terms of adenosine receptors. Coffee can stay in the system for up to 24 hours. And so it can disrupt sleep for some people and make people more vulnerable to panic attacks. Insomnia, heat blood sugar a little higher than it otherwise would be, and also has an, a destabilizing effect on hormones throughout the day. So you can, for some people who are sensitive to this, they'll notice a crash in their energy levels later on in the day or a spike in their appetite as caffeine wears off. Everyone's a little different in how well they do with caffeine. So it's really important to do your own experiments to see if you have anxiety or depression or low energy levels or insomnia, panic attacks, mood swings, it's really worth it to take the coffee out and just see whether or not it's one of your culprits. And then you can decide whether it's worth it to you to put it back in. Yeah, that's great advice. And I guess, are there any plants in your view where the said benefits kind of outweigh the negatives <laughs> of having them? <laughs> that's such a good question. I think it depends on what you're eating. If you don't feel comfortable eating animal foods or very much animal food, you may need to turn to some plants to meet your nutrient needs, you know? And so there are definitely vitamins in plants. One thing I wanted to ask was, is there any valid point for taking a multivitamin or a mineral supplement if someone is excluding plants from their diet, I guess? Would there be a benefit to additional nutrients without toxins from plants, maybe for someone involved in sports or something like that. How do you think about something like that? Do you mean for someone who's eating a carnivore diet? Yes. I get asked this question a lot in my consult service too. And theoretically, I can't think of anything that you're not getting from a carnivore diet if you're doing a carnivore diet in an optimal way, because there are good ways and bad ways to do it, just like with any diet. So for example, if you're overcooking all of your meat, you may not be getting all the nutrients you need. Some people believe that it's important to include some organ meats in your diet. I don't know whether that's important or not. I, to play it safe, I include a little bit of liver in my diet. But there are many people who don't and seem to be just fine. <laughs> you know, and I think that if you're an athlete, you want to make sure you're eating enough food and you want to make sure that you're including animal fat. Some people don't love eating a lot of animal fat. And so it's important if you're eating a carnivore diet that it's fatty meats and make sure you're including fat to get those not just the fat-soluble vitamins, but also the actual fatty acids, including the DHA and arachidonic acid and all of that that we need. Yeah. So I personally don't take any supplements. And I suppose if you're staying indoors a lot, you may want a vitamin D3 supplement. I mean, this is hypothetical. I don't know of any solid reason why you'd need to take anything additional, but I do think that it's important to not overcook your meat, Maybe include some organ meats if you're nervous about that and make sure you're spending some time outdoors so you get enough vitamin D, which is really best obtained from sunshine. Or maybe taking a D3 supplement in the wintertime if you didn't get enough exposure in the summertime. But these are all suggestions that, you know, if you want to make sure, then maybe you could take this or that. In terms of taking a, a straight multivitamin you know, that contains lots of different things in it, I usually don't recommend that. Not just because I don't think it's necessary in most cases, but because a lot of the supplements, they can actually be irritating and can cause side effects for some people. And there are so many 
vitamins and minerals in a standard supplement, you can't, if, if you take one in it and you and don't feel well, you won't be able to know which ingredient it is that's bothering you. Yeah. So I think, you know, it's good to just supplement the specific ones that you're worried about and test them out individually to make sure they don't bother you. Yeah, that's a great idea. And then someone had a question around, and I'm sure you've probably gotten this in your practice, microbial diversity on a carnivore diet. And if possible to have that without fiber. And then follow-up question, and this is somewhat related, is does removing plants make you unable to digest them ever again and therefore less resilient? Oh, these are such good questions. <laughs> Let's see. So the first question about microbial diversity. So there's this theory, and it is a theory that is not based on experimental evidence. There's a theory that the more diverse your microbiome is, the healthier you are. And there's no proof of that. It's a hypothesis based on associations uh, looking at healthier people and less healthy people and saying, oh, their microbiome of this healthier person looks more diverse than the microbiome of this less healthy person. And of course, they're comparing people who eat a junky, a really junky diet to people who are eating a healthier pattern, quote unquote, healthier pattern. And then based on questionnaires that they is sort of epidemiological study where they, they ask the people in the healthy group versus the unhealthy group what they're eating. And they try to figure out, well, why does this microbiome look more diverse than that microbiome? And, and the questionnaire answers that they focus on were the diversity of the plant foods in the diet. They jump to the conclusion that it must be because these people reported eating a greater diversity of plant foods. And that's why their microbiome looks more diverse. And that's why they're healthier. But that's the same mistake that we've been making for decades when we're comparing junk food diets to quote-unquote healthier diets, we're thinking that it's because of the presence of something rather than the absence of something. So how do we know that it's because there are more plant foods in the diet? How do we know that it's not because there's less junk in the diet? When I'm thinking about the microbiome, I like to ask the same question that I ask about any potential causal factor in a disease. So what is destroying the microbiome in the first place? And maybe it's important to stop eating that thing. <laughs> yeah. And we don't understand enough about this. We know that sugar is not good for the microbiome. There have been some studies on that. But we have absolutely no idea what a healthy microbiome is. We know that you can have 10 different people and have 10 different microbiomes. It's not as though there's one gold standard of a microbiome that we're all aiming for. I like to tell people that because the science, it's in its infancy, the microbiome science is fascinating but it's in its infancy. We do not yet have nearly enough information to be able to say, this is what you should eat to make your microbiome healthy. I like to say to people, eat what makes you healthy and let the microbiome fend for itself. Because if you're going to follow this very weak, very early, very biased science, you may end up less healthy than you were to begin with. So if you start eating a lot of fermented foods because you think that the microbiome needs to be fed prebiotics, then you might end up with a lot of gastrointestinal symptoms for the sake of your microbiome. Yeah. And there's no proof that those foods are good for your microbiome anyway. So the jury is out. We don't know. I say eat what makes you feel good and let the microbiome fend for itself. And then your second question was about removing plants and whether that makes you unable to digest them or kind of less resilient. I think at least temporarily, that is a possibility. 
I noticed for myself and for many of my clients that uh, consult with me and patients over the years that if they restrict their diet significantly, even if you don't go completely carnivore, even if you just remove a lot of the plants from your diet and then you reintroduce one of them or, or several of them, you may react more strongly to that food than you did before. Right. At least temporarily. Some people can build their tolerance back up if they continue eating it, but often there's an aversion to doing that because they don't feel well and eat the plant. And this is a hypothesis, but I think this may have to do with the fact that the enzyme systems needed to process those plant foods have gone into disuse. And so you have to kind of ramp the system back up again. It's like an assembly line that, you know, suddenly, you know, you, you, the assembly line needs to be dealing with different parts. And so it takes several weeks for cells to ramp up specific enzyme processing systems to be able to deal with certain foods. And so I think the same thing can happen sometimes to people who eat a, a plant-based diet and then they try to reintroduce some meat. I think the very same thing can happen. The microbiome needs to adjust, the enzyme systems in the liver need to adjust, etc. And so a lot of people make the mistake of saying, oh, well, I've eaten a vegan diet for five years. I put some meat back in one day and I felt terrible the next day. So I know that meat's not good for me. Well, maybe that's true, but I think uh, one possibility is that you've lost some tolerance because your system hasn't had a lot of practice lately dealing with that food. Yeah, I've heard that before as well, and I've heard it can take two to three weeks for your gut to adjust to being able to digest new foods, whether you're adding plants or adding animal foods for the first time. That's very interesting. And then there are some carnivores, including a couple I just interviewed who are both carnivorous, and they have questions about feeding their kids plants. And this might be more of an ethical question, but they're asking if the kids should eat like mom and dad or if they should include some plants for them, if there are special benefits of giving kids plants, you know, maybe something to giving them peanuts in small doses to desensitize them, or how would you kind of think about that? Oh, that is such an interesting question. I have not thought about that before. What a great question. <laughs> So I, I don't have a good answer, but I can just sort of you know, think about it out loud, which is it kind of two opposite reactions to that question. Because on the one hand, there's a lot of evidence in the psychological literature about the importance of families eating together and sharing the same foods. And that, you know, that kids shouldn't, you know, necessarily, unless there's a medical reason to do so, eat differently from the parents or feel like their diet is different. But, but this is a very special angle on that question. So because I don't think we know a lot about how much children may need to be exposed to certain antigens and foods in order to in order to be able to handle them if they come across them later in life. And I think the immune system may need to see some of those things. That If you think the child will be ever again exposed in their future to plant foods, uh, you know, nuts and uh, vegetables and things like that, it may be important to make sure they're exposed to them at least from time to time, so that the immune system has a chance to become familiar with that and, and understand that it's a food rather than a foreign invader. So that's a really good question. I don't know the answer. I think we should ask an immunologist. There are these cells called T cells in the human immune system that are born in the thymus gland. The immune system needs to be introduced to foods, and, and the, the gut does too, to be introduced to foods so that it figures out friend from foe, 
and knows which things to overreact to and which things to kind of leave alone. But not being an immunologist, I don't know the timing of that. Like, is that important only when kids are young? How long would you have to do it for? What's the window of time? Is it a few months? Is it a couple of years? I think that is a great, great question. Yeah, really interesting topic and something I'm sure I would struggle with if I had children. And, you know, on one hand, you want to make sure that you're not restricting them and and you want to make sure they are getting sort of these immunological effects. But on the other hand, if you know that their oxalates and spinach is harmful to you, why do you want to give your children spinach? It's really tough. Yes, but it makes me think now, you know, if, if I were a parent, which I'm not, and I had to make this choice without enough information to be sure, I would play it safe and I would make sure the child had access to the, you know, the pre-agricultural safer foods, like sort of the fruit vegetables, mm. you know, things that are low in toxins, but that are plants that, you know, we're probably well adapted to deal with. I wouldn't necessarily, I don't know if I'd go out of my way to feed them, you know, grains and beans and things like that, but at least some fruits and some certain, you know, low toxin vegetables so that their system knows what to do with fiber and their system will, you know, know what to do with certain plant toxins. You know, I don't know if spinach was ever really a food that we would have gone out of our way to procure. <laughs> yeah. You know, in, in the past, there just isn't a lot of nutritional value in spinach. I mean, you can't actually get any of the iron out of spinach because of the oxalates. You have absolutely no access to the iron in spinach. So I guess if I were a parent, I would choose the low toxicity plants in the absence of additional information. Yeah, I think that's great advice and seems to be what a lot of folks like Danny and Mauro Vega and um, Nutrition with Judy on Instagram, just some folks who follow a carnivore diet and seem to feed their kids similar kind of whole, whole foods, ketogenic type approach focused on animal nutrition. And one particular question that was really fascinating, I had a woman named Nevada Gray. She goes by the handle Paleo Pharmacist, and she had an amazing recovery from Quadra Equina Syndrome. And she was wondering if you had any information or could recommend best papers, resources, or scientists on the neurotoxicity mechanisms in peripheral nerves with such conditions. Wow, I don't. (laughs) (laughs) But your audience is better educated than I am about certain topics, which is, I love that. I mean, isn't this great? We're always learning from each other. I just love this community because we're asking new questions and taking on new issues. And really, it's it's just really the Wild West. It's the frontier of nutrition science. It's just so exciting. But uh, there are many neurotoxins in plants, and we do understand very well how some of them work. This doesn't mean they don't exist, but I don't know of any papers specifically addressing neurotoxicity of plants for specific syndromes, particularly Cotoquina syndrome, or, but the, the place to look for those kinds of things is, you know, to look at the individual plant toxins. And for example, in the glycoalkaloids and nightshades, which are acetylcholinesterase inhibitors, they interfere with the ability of nerves, particularly peripheral nerves, to process chemical signals. So they can be really Some people can be very sensitive to these and have significant pain in their peripheral nerves when they, when they eat nightshade foods. But in terms of more specific information for her, I'm afraid I don't, but she could write to me and I could see if I could help her. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. No problem. And there are a few folks who asked about very specific conditions. I won't go through all of them just because in the interest of time, 
But one which caught my eye and I think I haven't talked about it enough on the show is menopause. And someone mentioned PMDD, which I imagine is postmenopausal depressive disorder. I'm not certain. But they talked about the carnivore diet for women, specifically in those types of situations. Can you talk about how that might be helpful or how that would work? Yes, I love that question. So there's the menopause question. Then there's PMDD, which is premenstrual dysphoric disorder. Got it. For people who have a lot, of course, and for people who have a lot of mood symptoms leading up to the beginning of their period, and sometimes this can be just a few days before, and sometimes it can even be two week, up to two weeks before. And uh, carnivore diets can be, and this is a theoretical, I mean, we see it, we see it in the real world. There, you don't see any papers on this, but we see it in the real world, and there are good mechanisms for understanding why a carnivore diet would help a lot with resetting hormonal balance and improving hormonal harmony. So the foods that we eat outside of a carnivore diet, especially the refined carbohydrates, which can destabilize many of our hormones, but also many plant foods have phytoestrogens and other kinds of hormone mimicking compounds within them. And these disrupt our normal hormonal rhythms. So eating a carnivore diet makes sense that it would stabilize and sort of restore hormonal harmony. And Hormonal harmony is particularly important to pay attention to if your hormones are out of whack, so to speak. It can affect you for up to two weeks before your period, and it can affect you after delivering a baby. It can affect you during adolescence, during puberty, and it can affect you during the perimenopausal years. And so women, it's just so amazing, the human body. You know, women have these natural cycles in their hormones, which are there, of course, for reproductive purposes. But you know they're not supposed to cause all kinds. Of course, we're not designed to have all this disability around it. We're not supposed to have all kinds of pain and dysfunction and mood swings. It wouldn't make sense for us to become depressed after we gave birth to a baby. That's the last time in the world that nature wants you to be depressed is when you're supposed to be caring for a newborn. So you know none of these things make sense. And so none of these things, it's not normal is what I'm trying to say. It's not normal to have all of these, quote unquote, you know, female symptoms. Yeah. These are, as far as I can tell, being caused by environmental influences that are throwing us all out of balance. So my own personal story with this is that I'm 54. And as I was leading up to my 53rd birthday almost two years ago, I started having all kinds of perimenopausal symptoms, you know, hot flashes and some moodiness and some insomnia and fatigue and that sort of thing. And all my migraines came back, which originally my low plant ketogenic diet had really helped me very much with, I virtually eliminated them. So all of these things came back and I even started gaining weight on a ketogenic diet, which was demoralizing. <laughs> I mean, I was checking my ketones. I had ketones every day and I was still gaining weight. So, you know, something was shifting hormonally. Things were shifting and my diet had to shift as well. And this was, I was still, I wasn't on a carnivore diet at the time. I was on a very low plant keto. And so I dove into the literature to see what I could learn about menopause and hormones. And there's actually not as much written about this as you would hope. But there are several things happening during perimenopause. It's not just a drop in estrogen that's happening. It's also a drop in growth hormone. And so a number of things. So anyway, long story short, I shifted to a carnivore diet because there really wasn't anywhere left for me to go with my diet. <laughs> yeah. There just wasn't anything else. I was already keto. I was already low plant. I was already, you know, whole foods, et cetera. 
you know, and I tried carnivore diet a few times before and it really was where my theory and my philosophy always was. I always knew from the science, I understood that a carnivore diet was very healthy and probably the healthiest diet I could eat. But I just never thought I needed to be that extreme. I always thought, well, I'm doing fine on my low plant keto. Why make my, why restrict myself even further? So the few times I had tried it, I understood about my histamine intolerance yet. So I hadn't felt well when I'd um, gone to an all meat diet. So in any case, I, um, when I switched to the carnivore diet, all of my perimenopausal symptoms went away, which was amazing. And so just so wonderful. And the weight gain reversed itself. I lost 24 pounds. The hot flashes went away. The migraines went away. My sleep was so much better. My energy was so much better. I started my carnivore diet the end of May last year. So it's been maybe 10 or 11 months now. And so I love, I love this diet. <laughs> I love it. And I keep meaning to, to write about my experience. I just haven't had time yet. There's always something else more pressing. And But I do promise people I will be writing about it. But for long story short is it's fabulous, at least in my case, for perimenopause. And I do think that the plant foods that were in my diet, the few that were remaining, they were either, they were, maybe there was too much carbohydrate and it wasn't allowing me to be ketogenic enough and I needed that. Or maybe there were the, you know, the hormone disruptors left in the few plants I was eating that were just enough to cause problems. I don't know, but it certainly worked for me. Yeah, that's amazing to hear and glad you're finding success with it and sounds like planning to continue. And Georgia, just quickly curious, what does kind of a day of eating look like for you? <laughs> so I have a lot of food sensitivities, histamine intolerance. I don't do well with beef. I don't do well with pork. I don't do well with dairy. I don't do well with eggs. I don't do well with aged foods, cured foods, processed foods, and I don't do well with spices or any of that. So I eat very, very few foods. I eat primarily poultry, a lot of duck, some chicken, some turkey, but mostly duck. I eat salmon and I eat lamb. Those are sort of my big three, poultry, salmon, and lemon. <laughs> salmon, lemon. <laughs> <laughs> lamb and salmon. So that's what my diet looks like. I do supplement with some duck fat if I'm eating chicken. Chicken I find doesn't have enough fat. So I add duck fat to the chicken. But the lamb is fatty enough and, and, and the salmon is, is fatty enough. So, But with chicken or turkey, I'll often add some duck fat. But that is pretty much it. I rarely stray from that. I, I sometimes we'll eat other types of seafood or if I'm out at a restaurant, I, I might eat something that, different that's on the menu, but um, mostly that's what I prefer to, to stick to. Yeah, sounds delicious. And I'm sorry to hear about the beef intolerance. That's sad, but uh, it sounds like you're making it work really well. Well, Georgia, you've been incredibly generous with your time. Really want to thank you for coming on and just want to ask where folks can find out more about you and find your work. Yeah, no, I've really loved uh, the conversation. I mean, you're asked fabulous questions. And I, by the way, I, I've really enjoyed listening to some of your episodes with other carnivores. Oh, thank you. I'm flattered. Yes, absolutely. And I just think you, you know, it, it's a really great podcast. So I, where can they find me? Oh, so I write for psychology today and I write for my own website, diagnosisdiet.com. And I am on, I'm very active on Twitter at Georgia Eat MD. My last name is E-D-E and Facebook, Georgia Eat MD. And so if people, uh, I now have a consult service. If people want to talk to me, they can do that. There's a consult page on my website. 
Thank you for listening to the show. You can find The Scott My Show on Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. Please leave a comment, like, review, or share the podcast with your friends or followers. It helps more people find the show.